out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the writer and fanzine writer. It's the one and only Richard Langston, who I spoke to and was on the other side of the world. So, um, yes, the reception's good, so don't worry about it. Um, he's just poured, brought out a book about the fanzine that he did in the mid-80s. This is titled Pull Down the Shades, Garage Fanzine from 1984 to 1986. Tales from the New Zealand Music Underground. It's a beautifully put-together book come, um, published by Hozak Books. Available from all good bookshops and also various other places. Anyway, this is the interview, so after several minutes of interesting but casual chat that we edit out, we get down to that exciting subject that was Richard's early musical awakening. Richard, it's over to you. Um, I suppose I all, always, um, we always had music. Uh, my sister and I have got a twin sister, and we, we were both very keen on music. I have to say the first things, <coughs> excuse me, that I really loved with things like Eric Carmen and the Raspberries and um and the Beach Boys. Um they they were uh I guess they they just led me down a path, led me into music more. Um I mean my real awakening happened when things started to happen in my own backyard. Right. When Toy Love got going, when the clean got going. That that was more of an awakening for me than uh you know, I mean, I knew knew the beat. I had heard, of course, like everyone had heard the Beatles and the Stones and so forth. But really, got me going was what was happening locally. Yes. So, did you, as you were sort of growing up, what was your kind of first record and first live concert you that you went to? Um, first record. Wow. Uh, I, I, well, I actually can't remember what my first record was. I didn't really start buying records seriously until uh, my 20s. I'd sort of, you know, just listen to the family records. and But then once I did start, um, I I honestly, David, would be struggling to remember what my first (laughs) was. I I mean, I I remember uh, getting, I certainly remember getting the first, the first Velvet Underground record that was released here. That was the 1969 live double album. Right. And that made a huge impact. That was something different. It was, um, we'd only heard about the Velvets. Their records weren't really released here, but, uh, you know, certainly not widely. And, that, and, and strangely, that live record was the first one we heard. Yes, that is strange because normally it's mm. the one with the the the, the, the banana one with um, Sunday morning as the opening track. So as the eighties, yeah. as the eighties sort of, so you would have actually you would have been a perfect age for punk, really, wouldn't you? Because I was a bit too young yeah. for punk, but you would have you would have had that kind of like moment of being a bit older. I was probably still a bit more of a chart bound person. I did have an older brother who was um, seven years older. He was into prog, so I. Obviously, right. you know, wanted to copy him because I thought he was so cool. So, prog came into my life in the mid seventies uh, for a few years, and I thought it was just brilliant, and I loved it, and I wanted to embrace Yes and Genesis and Wishbone Ash and the solo work of Rick Wakeman as well. So, um, there you go, check me <laughs> really, out. Really, I, I, I regard myself as fortunate that I uh, would I missed prog entirely. I mean, I heard <laughs> it, 
was the sort of music you heard being played in the chess club, you know. Um, yes. <laughs> but it wasn't for me. I, I, I liked it more fundamental, really. And so when punk did happen, initially, like everyone, I think it, it, it arrived as a shock, a social shock, before, you know, as much as you were trying to appreciate the music. The headlines were the shock of these um, scoundrels playing, um, you know, this, you know, the filth and the fury headlines, that kind of stuff. Yes, more so than than the music. You know, once you got rid of that nonsense, you you concentrated on the music and realised that you know the Sex Pistols album was 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 fantastic. The Ramones were big here too, and the Saints, the Australian band, the Saints, they yes. they made a huge impact. Uh, so. Um, there was happening concurrently. Well, that's, what, about, that's what, what about people like Radio Birdland? Did they sort of cross come over and um, have any impact that, on you? That was later. It was later in the 80s that we became aware of Radio Birdman. And that, again, was, for me, that was through the fanzine network. When Once I'd started my fanzine, um, I was exposed to a whole lot more music. That that was fantastic, and and there was an Australian uh, zine called B Side, and they really covered that that heavy side of Sydney, the Stooges inspired side of Sydney. So yes, we did, and I had a friend who had a massive record collection, and he was a huge Radio Birdman fan because he was a Stooges fan, and Dunedin was a place where people had vast collections. You know, it's a cold, wintry place, so you can spend a lot of time indoors. So there were huge record collections and book collections about music. So once you tapped into that network, suddenly this whole world opened up, you know, and that's what that happened to me, you know, where you hear the 13th floor elevators and nuggets and all those uh, garage uh, bands that were fantastic, you know. Yes. One song, it, it, it stayed with you. It had a whole aesthetic that you recognised, and and that was probably really David when my awakening happened, and when when I when all that nuggets and uh, all, the, all the the nuggets comp and all that stuff um, hit my ears. Uh, I, I it also helped me understand more where the clean had come from. You know, I, they had absorbed a whole lot of music by the time uh, punk hit. You know, when they formed in uh, 78, we played their first gigs in yes. May 70. They had to listen to a lot of music. And that, to me, is why they were way more interesting than your, your three-chord punk band. They had already absorbed psychedelia, West Coast uh, American music. And so they had a whole vocab to call on. And, and that's why I think the Clean have had such staying power. They You don't, you don't hear the Clean and go, oh, they're a punk band. Mm. You go, holy hell. There's many strands to this band. You know, <laughs> one minute they sound like Question Mark and the Mysterians, and the next minute they sound like, you know, they're doing something on White Light, White Heat. So that's what I love about them, and that's why I think they've, uh, you know, that people continue to discover them. Yes, absolutely. It's kind of interesting because because um, I think earlier this year or last year, there was the guy who was a writer, James Brown. <clears throat> He's kind of famous for the lads magazine or mag from the 90s called loaded but then he 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 um uh, <clears throat> published his book last year <clears throat> and uh called probably loaded but his 80s was all about being a fanzine writer it was just like this life of being a fanzine writer and you know this this is how he got into journalism and then he sort of got into the nme and then he sort of in the 90s 
sort of started Loaded magazine, which obviously is kind of, um, you know, it's loaded. So it's the 90s. This is John Major years. So as, uh, so how did fanzines come into your life then during that that kind of period? Well, I did the opposite of what you're describing James Brown doing. I had I had trained as a conventional journalist on a newspaper from the time I was 17. And, th- and that's where I met one of the, the, my formative influences, Roy Colbert, who was the music shop owner in Dunedin and, and a pivotal figure in the Dunedin scene. That's where I met him. He was my boss. And uh, so he was the music writer uh, and also a record shop owner and had a vast knowledge of music, including all the nuggets and the 60s. Um, So I trained as a journalist. And then uh, after then I went to London for a while and freelanced as a music writer um, and visited the Rough Trade shop and visited Rough Trade. And when I would go to the Rough Trade shop, there were fanzines on the counter, the right. British fanzines, and I and I was fascinated by them. I had missed uh, sniffing glue. I, I, you know, I, w- I wish I could say that that's what inspired me, but it was finished by the time I was in England in '83, and um, I saw all these fanzines, and and then, I mean, and I was still in touch with Flying Nun uh, because I was friends with Hamish Kilgour. He, I had met Hamish for the first time on the newspaper in Dunedin that, that I worked on. And he sent records across from Flying Nun. So I was aware, even living in London, of uh, the great music that was still happening in in, in uh, Dunedin and Christchurch. And so, um, you know, that that's, uh, I, those visits were, were pivotal. And when I got home from London, I thought I should do a fanzine. I should do something unconventional. Um, conventional journalism would only allow so much coverage, even yes. though the paper did cover. It, it was not. I was more curious about um, how what how, what what had inspired the clean, what what music they had listened to. So a fanzine is an ideal place to pursue your curiosity. I mean, because it's 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 like the cheapest form of journal, cheapest form of publishing. Yes. Um, it's very effective once once you. I mean, I, it started kind of like a, a half-baked school project, Garrett, really, <laughs> and, and, and it evolved because we had a lot of music uh, fans and writers, like we had Bruce Russell, who's now famous, famously in the Dead Sea. Bruce came to me before I even got the first uh, issue going and said, I'll, I'm your guy, I'll, I'll write for you. And Bruce already had a whole a knowledge of the Christchurch scene more than uh, anyone I knew, and so he was he he opened. I mean, we knew about a lot of it, but Bruce could uh, write about it with with knowledge, and it was that's what. So then it suddenly started to evolve, David, into something that could be useful, could be decent, because we were recording and reviewing, and and all this music was happening, and it was it was just. It, it, yeah, it needed more coverage, so we it was just fantastic, and that made us kind of a part of it, and even more exciting because you're you, it, it, it's never far to to visit someone underneath. You know, there's no PR people. These <laughs> are your mates making music, so you you go and see them, or you talk to them at the pub, and you say, well, "Can I? I'd like to interview you." Sure, come round. You know, so. 
there was no in conventional journalism. You know, there's a lot of gatekeepers. Sometimes you can't get to people. Sometimes you, you you can get to someone if you interview someone else. You know, there's a lot of that in uh, in conventional music journalism. But there was none of that with the fanzine. People were just they were happy to talk. You know. Yes, and, uh, absolutely. And I guess at the time, obviously, you were aware of a few fanzines from here and there. But were you? I mean, in the New York scene, there was one called Punk, wasn't there? Because I got the book on. Yeah. I yeah. guess I guess you um the best of punk I saw punk until that's the one that famously had Lou Reed on the cover. Yeah, the, the best punk magazine actually. So I yeah. guess I mean I guess it's only in well, retrospect yeah, that yeah, you've you've become more aware of what you were part of, really, isn't it? Yeah, although we, there wasn't an aware we I, if I didn't know about the you know the the real famous foundation zines like punk um, and sniff and glue. Um, uh, there was a network of of, uh, of zines that 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 sent their their stuff to us, and we sent our stuff to them. So, you know, there was the beat happening people up on uh, in Portland, up on the west coast of the states. Um, Is that Kelvin? Uh, the K label, you know, Kelvin Johnson. Yes. So there was them, and there was forced exposure. Uh, who were really crucial, actually, in, in um, they reviewed us, they reviewed Garage and talked about it, the, the New Zealand music in, in the, in the, in the mid-80s, and that really uh, broke open uh, yes. a lot of, you know. And it's kind stuff. of interesting because I suppose for me, you know, like 89, Thatcher gets in, you know, the Conservative government suddenly take charge for what feels like decades, and we have that 10 mm. years with Thatcher, but then we have... You know, there's the Falkland War, there's the miners' strike, there's Greenham Common. There's a huge amount of unemployment in the UK at that yeah. stage. And then there was this other these schemes to try and sort of massage the unemployment figures for especially young people. So, you know, because there was a lot of unemployment and there was very little hope really for the future. So, you know, there was people signing on, there was a job seekers allowance, enterprise allowance schemes, anything to say, oh, they're not quite unemployed, but, you know, we can put them on a different spreadsheet, I suppose. Um, and mm. I think that that helped create a lot of musical bands in a way, because because A, there was no idea that there was going to be any future for us. And B, you know, it was like, well, you can get your, you know, you can get £38, you get your housing benefit and your council tax paid. And, you know, you have that age mm. where you just want to go to the pub, smoke, and then for some people, just play in bands. And then we had the gatekeepers. You know, you obviously realised being in London, you had the NME, Melody Maker Sounds. We also had mm. John, the John Peel show, which was a massive beacon in our lives. Everybody yeah. suddenly, you know, could think, well, we could get a single and get it played on John Peel, and that will be our musical career done. You know, because prog rock up to then made you feel like, you know, you didn't, you didn't know how to play classical music you couldn't put those kind of clever jazz bits in or those clever bass solos but you know punk and indie kind of gave everyone that opportunity didn't it so yeah so the fanzine writer also kind of was born at this period as well mm. yeah um i took just on the john peel uh fact i i we well a lot of us took records to peel uh, the flying nun records, the clean chills, and so forth. So he he also played those. Um, he played the great unwashed. So he was yeah he was important to to our scene as well. And I met him a couple of times. He was um he was a neat guy. You know he actually invited me to his house, but I was too freaked out to go and see the be you know visit the famous John Peel. Um, but 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 yeah, I mean you you don't. 
really realise, well, I certainly didn't realise that what we were doing was having an impact overseas, that what we were writing and informing, I don't I knew that it sold. It sold in New York. Garrett sold in New York, London, Sydney, Melbourne. So I knew that people were reading it, but you didn't, you just thought, oh, well, other fans are reading it, but it has an impact beyond that. You, you, you're spreading the word, you know, and, and bands, I mean, the music spread it's the word itself, obviously, but we just help, I think, um, fill in the background. And, and 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 Matt Goody, who the Canadian who's fabulous, written the fabulous book on um, on flying nuns early years. Oh, was that last? Yeah, was this just come out? Needles and plastic. Yeah, needles and plastic. He um, said how important Garage was in in his um, in, in trying to find out. Because he heard these bands, he he got a load of flying nun records that were being uh, sold off in fl- in rough trade, and he was he- hearing these bands like this kind of punishment and going, "What? Where the who the hell are these people? How did they make this music?" And then he discovered Garage Online, and he goes, "Ah, okay, I can start writing a book about this stuff." So he sort of acknowledged that in his book that Garage played a role yes. in. Uh, and his book's been universally welcomed here. It's so it's just it's the book that no New Zealander could write, and, and because we're all too close to it, you know, and probably got access to grind. Matt Matt just went to the sources and wrote this fabulous book. So when <laughs> I went, when I went to the states uh, just recently, Matt and I did joint launches of our books. So he's me talking about. So he's me on one part of the table talking about pull down the shades, and Matt. Matt, who's got an incredible knowledge, more of a of a factual knowledge of what happened than me, we were kind of an ideal foils for each other because I could give you the first-hand account and Matt could actually give me the date. <laughs> <laughs> yes, this is true. But then, because also for, for me, you know, 83, big year, the Smiths form, and so we have indie pop for this five-year period with the Smiths until they break up in 87. So your fanzine... You said you went to London and and had a period in in London because a lot of people I noticed fans all you know from you know New Zealand and and Australia as well. I know there's two different countries, but it's a long way away. You know, often come over to the UK, do a bit of squatting in London. You know, there was all you know everybody seems to have done it. And before then, yeah. you've had people like I suppose, um, is it Jermaine Greer, Robert Hughes, and obviously, um, yeah. Oh, that Australian state, yeah. uh, Bar- oh, uh, Barry Barry Humphreys. They all they came over in the sixties, didn't they? And sort of mm-hmm. you know started another life here. So what was it? Why why did you want to come to the UK for a a session? Was it just a venture and being you know young and enthusiastic? Well, it's a bit of a <clears throat> it's a bit of a rite of passage for colonials, you know, because you know you know of course we were settled uh, by by British people, you know, so. You know, from the 1840s onward. Um, yes. So, so, it, and my mother was English. She was an English nurse. So I went. It's a. It was a. So you know, you're kind of tethered a little bit uh, still to the old country. Um, so that's and so you get there and <laughs> discover a different reality from. From you know your your chocolate box idea of London, suddenly you're living in a pretty you know <laughs> a pretty damp kind of a place, uh, you know, or squatting or living in you know, 
and it it was a tough it was a tough time, but it was a really interesting time because um, the music was great. I, I on the subject of the Smiths, I mean, I interviewed Morrissey. I, I saw a lot of English bands. I saw the Fall, um, saw the Smiths, um, Orange Juice. I, I mean, I saw a lot of bands, so it was great. And and that's why you go because you do believe that is still the centre of the world uh, in a way. If you're a music fan, London does hold. Um, uh, you know, it holds a lot of power. Yes, and you go there to touch it, discover it, and then you realize. Well, for me personally, I, I, I mean, I, I saw a lot of great bands, but I had seen one gig uh, b- before I left New Zealand. It was um, the Tall Dwarfs and the Clean playing in Christchurch, and that gig. That you know, you talk. You, we talked talk about formative moments. That was another formative moment for me that I realized. I was standing in the presence in my own backyard of terrific, great music because we had often looked to the USA and to the UK. Mm. That, that's where music was. You know, what we would do would be a poor facsimile of it. But I realised that what was happening in New Zealand was extraordinary and was happening on, and, and you know, you have to sort of throw off your colonial shackles and realise where you live and there are great things happening. I mean, our, our own history was not emphasised when we were at school, you know, so you're, you're it's, a, it's a bizarre experience, the colonial experience. It's only now we truly st- are starting to value and look at our own history. And so to a degree that happened with, our music, we had to sort of. Well, my generation had to had to grow up and realise where we are, and uh, and acknowledge that, um, that there is great music being made here. And now I, I think that's because of the in, uh, the internet. I mean, that, that's changed the whole world. You, you know, it doesn't matter where you're born. Uh, you know, we've got Lord. You you've got people who are. Uh, uh, pop stars. You go a pop star from New Zealand. That's unusual. Well, it isn't now. No, uh, uh, that doesn't happen to be my particular music, but my generation sort of stood up and announced itself um, in in indie rock. You know, I think, and that and it, the impact of those bands is still evolving. The Clean and and the Chills and and you know, so they they they, they still got a creative life. Yes. There's so many more bands, you know, so many more bands. The Builders were just. I mean, Bill Doreen has an extraordinary body of work that some people have discovered and still fanzines are writing about him, you know, in the States, like Dynamite Hem- Hemorrhage. And, because he's an extraordinary figure, theatrical, great songwriter, poet. And so you, there's the, you just keep discovering more and more, David. So And I've kept interviewing these people. So, you know, Pull Down the Shades, my book, has interviews from... 2013 to 2022, 23, actually. I think the last one we did was uh, with John Halverson of the Gordons uh, in Belter Space. And so the book, it, it, it's kept going. It's not like I'm reporting about things that are past. They're still happening as far as I'm concerned. Yes, this is all true. I know this is this is kind of a fascinating thing. So just briefly, because I was quite excited about that. When when you got to interview Morrissey, was this kind of eighty three time? It was. It was. Uh, was it between the? It, it was. It, I think the first out. This charming man was out. Right. You know, so you and I very... love that song because I was working in a bookshop and it was killing me. I mean, it was so boring. I was freelancing. 
uh, yeah, to survive, I was freelancing as a journalist, working in a bookshop and working as a cycle courier at various points. And when I was working in the bookshop, W.H. Smith, oh, my God, it was so dull. The guy in the records, there was a little record section at the back, and he would play prog rock and just do my head. And, and every so often I'd say, if you don't play this charming man, I'm going to come across the counter and kill you. <laughs> it was great. People don't, you know, Morrissey's, a, you know, obviously now a controversial figure. And even at the time, New Zealanders, well, the scene that I was in was pretty sniffy about the Smiths. Some people liked them. Some people just hated them and thought they were fey English band. But I, I, I liked them. Um, yeah. And that song was, you know, it shone a light in a very great bloody life, to be honest. Yes. Well, I, I think, you know, I had a job in a bakery for a while that, it sort of the the opening line, you know, jumped up Patry Boy sort of spoke to me. And I was because also at that point in the early 80s, like I said, there was this sudden new confidence from the right, you know, politically. And and mm. suddenly there was these kind of like rather clean and shiny bands with this Trevor Horn production sound. There was mm. I know I know ABC had, have got their heart in the right place, but there was that sound. There was Frankie Goes to Hollywood again. They They kind of. I don't know, their sound, their sound wasn't mine. And there was Dire Straits and then Duran Duran, Spandau Ballet, Sade, Throne, and Simply Red. I mean, some of them have got their heart again in the right place, but they got picked up by those kind of yuppie types, you know, who, mm. who you would say in a very snobby way, weren't really into music, but they would just buy, you know, like a Whitney Houston album or, you know, Phil Collins' Face Value, you know, and that, that for me, you know, it was like, so the Smiths were an easy you know, moment, weren't they? You know, things like that. Well, they that. were. Well, it was. I mean, it was an indie moment that broke through. It was, pro you know, slightly to the to the mainstream. It, it was 83, so they were starting out. Um, yeah, I, I, I remember Morrissey was living in quite a... It was strange. I, I went... I actually went... You know, normally when you interview a, a pop star, you yes. go... You go to the offices of the record company or somewhere neutral, but actually went to Morrissey's apart, uh, apartment in Kensington in London, which was, which seemed very grand compared to the, the groveling little hovel I was living in with my girlfriend. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, it was it, it was was a glimpse into how life could be if you were successful. You know, I mean, it, it, it wasn't a grand place, but it was a nice place. You know, excellent. And and did it you had the smell of success? You know. Or someone who was going to be big, you know. Yes. He was pretty pleasant and pretty interesting. And, you know, I probably so callow I asked probably the dumbest questions going, but, um, um, you there know, you I, I, it was a very pleasant encounter. And did you it record it on Italian a journalist as well? Pardon? Oh, it was in a, with an Italian journalist as well, it's from my me memory. It was two of us, which is unusual in itself. I mean, I was from a... I mean, it was a we, I wrote a cover story for um, for our national uh, music monthly uh, "Rip It Up," um, which was um, you know a really a, a cool publication in its own right. It was um, um, you know it was a vital uh, form of information as well, more more conventional journalism, but really good. Written lots of music fans writing for it, and it was terrific. It ran yes, years. And have you come across that other podcast called Rock's Back Pages by Barney Hoskins, who's who you know he's been collecting all these interviews and things? I just wondered if you've you've put any of your interviews in in that archive as, as well. 
No, I'm, you... I'm aware. I'm aware of that archive, but no, I haven't. Yeah, because do you keep, have you got any of those interviews from that period? Um, what you mean? Are they recorded? Well, well, yeah, that Morrissey one. I just wonder if you've got it still. Um, well, I haven't got the transcript. I haven't got the transcript, or oh, I must have recorded it because uh, my shorthand was dreadful. But those tapes would be long gone and wiped over. I mean, I interviewed John Peel. I had to interview him twice because the first time the tape recorded didn't work. I mean, he was so so gracious. He he agreed a second time and shouted me a second curry. Um, <laughs> What a good man he was. It was a great excuse to meet him twice, actually. Yes, he was, my God. He, he, yeah, he, he, for years he wrote postcards and, uh, you know, he, he was always so grateful when he received music from New Zealand and he was terrific. Yes. So then you came back to New Zealand and then you started your fanzine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, did you, and did you have any kind of... Um, help lessons of how to put this together you know your design or anything like that no completely none and 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 it, and it probably and it shows in the first ones which are rough but that's the way it should be i mean i had um i had done enough uh conventional journalism um to not want to look professional I, that was not the point it was a fanzine it's meant to be rough it's meant to be prejudiced it's meant to be a bit wild it's meant to look a bit ragged because that's the nature of it and if you look at the first editions of any zine you'll see it um evolve you know yes. they all evolved. you know that start out really rough and then something happens and they become uh better uh they had more design and and that happened that definitely happened to garage and that was just uh fumbling in the dark and and arriving at by by the by the fourth issue of garage we arrived at what we should have looked like from issue one if you're that way inclined i wasn't you know it, it evolved it evolved perfectly uh apart from issue two when hilariously we we should have, i should have changed my typewriter ribbon because some of some of it's very difficult to read. Didn't have enough ink on it, David. God. Oh, I know the the old days. It, it is absolutely beautifully. You know, it's such a great and a collection, and it's fantastic. You've managed to archive it. So, what happens as you sort of trundle through a couple of the? Because it's for two years, isn't it? The fanzine kind of lasts. Yeah. So yeah. Then, yeah. Mm. And I just wondered what was kind of happening. Was it um, issue six and then was it, did you get to issue seven? No, no. I, I had a plan for issue seven and I just ran out of steam and also life took over. I had to start earning um, some money. You know, I, I was getting into, getting, heading towards, I, I was steaming towards my thirties, I think. Right. Uh, so, I, oh, I, you know, I, I probably should go back to working full-time or something like that. And anyway, and I thought we'd, and it kind of, I thought we'd done what we needed to do uh, to a degree. I'd gone as far as I could go with my obsession with the clean. Uh, someone, <laughs> someone recently called me a cleaniac, and I kind of like that phrase because uh, they have been, you know, foundation to, uh, to, to everything really that I've done in music that I really value. Yes, um, absolutely. So, yeah, I just, yeah, I guess I, I, I actually had, I did an interview for Garage 7 with uh, Peter Jeffries, 
from this kind of punishment because I had a plan to put him on the cover because I thought that he was so terrifically interesting and such a good musician. I wanted to, um, so I did interview him. Um, and, and bizarrely, I recorded that interview, but I lost the tape. And But I always remember what he'd said to me and because uh, he was so interesting about how he wrote songs. Um, and so 30 years later, was it, hang on, so that would have been 86. I interviewed Peter, uh, yeah, it's like 2000 and I don't know what, when it was, uh, but, but in recent years, and I basically asked him a lot of the same questions that I wanted, that I'd asked him way back. Uh, so it was great to do that interview and to get it in, uh, pull down the shades, you know, because, yeah, I, that was, it, it, it bugged me that I'd never published that. And so I, I was, I was delighted to do, to interview him years later. Yes, absolutely. So yes, coming to the book, when did you, when did the idea come to sort of archive it and and put it into a nice nifty collection and uh, publish it well that was the genius idea of todd novak from hozak books in chicago todd is a a music collector a music fan of extraordinary proportions he knows he's got he's got pinks records i never knew existed he he's just a, a fabulously interesting guy who loves his music and he started his company, I think, in 2006, something like that, pub, to issue records. Um, he started initially as a record company, and then by about 2014, he evolved into um, a, a book publisher as well. You, you know, they work in tandem, obviously. Yeah. And he, he's my book is the 19th book he has published, and all his books are fascinating because they – he he works out an area that people think should should still be reading about, you know, niche scenes. Like he recognised the New Zealand scene immediately when he saw my zine uh, online. He wrote to me two years ago and said, "We should turn this into a book." And I said, "Are you crazy? What you want to? How how would you even do that? You know?" And he said, "Oh, I've got the ways and means, and I've got, and I've got the will." And now that I know Todd. I knew that book was always going to happen because once that guy decides he's going to do something, he goes like a steam train. He is, he is a one-man publishing tsunami, you know. Yes. <laughs> he's incredible. He, You know, he loads the books in and out during the day and edits them at night. And so I, I've learned all this since I visited him in Chicago, how he operates. But at the time, he just wrote to me and said, yeah, we should do this as a book. This is how we can start doing it. We just started work. He said, Please, you know, send me scans of the mag and and you just write some bits in between and, you know, to kind of give us some context for what you were thinking at the time of the pub when you were putting these out. And I said, well, I can do that. But I said, I'm Todd. I've also continued to interview these people obsessively for, for you know, so I had another, I have another 20-odd interviews. He said, great. Okay, send them to me. So... Suddenly we had a book, by the time I'd sent him all the material, the, the book was actually getting too big. So we had to trim some stuff out, but, but um, it's, got, it's got the main, you know, it's got the, the best of it. Yes. Sure. I mean, it is kind of, it is fantastic that you've put these interviews on at the end, you know, because actually, yeah, like you said, that it, 
you know, especially that Peter Jeffries one that you sort of mm. lost, I suppose. But it's sort of mm. kind of these are the, these are the kind of main, you know, some of the main players, aren't they, to sort of give you mm. even more background to to the project. So I think that's yeah. kind of genius, actually, because again, I suppose if it had just been the fanzine, you know, your six editions, it probably would yeah. have it would have probably looked a little bit thin. Whereas actually, this is you know yeah. created. I I thought yeah. so. What, what, what's really terrific, David, to, to me about the, having the interviews in the book as well is that I simply didn't really understand enough at the time to ask people um, about technically w what were they doing, how, because, you know, there's, there's this term that's evolved called the Dunedin sound. And I, I'm not a music, uh, technically I don't know anything about music, but I got David Kilgour and Alec Bathgate, the two my, two of my favourite guitarists, to talk about that. And they talk about each other and they talk about how, well, you, you, you have to read it in the book because they describe it well about how um, they developed their technique, which gave the kind of drone that became uh, emblematic of, of that Dunedin sound. And it's great to hear them talk about that and also to, to hear David talk about Peter Gutteridge, who's a, a really important figure in um, the whole Flying Nun music scene, that the early years he was, you know, in momentarily in the chills and he was in the clean, he was in the great unwashed, and then he formed his own band that we really uh, gave us his full talent called, the band was called Snapper. And we yeah. can understand what Peter really was trying to do he achieved it with that band and also in a fantastic compilation called pure which came out originally as a cassette and there's the songs bits of songs but just as an incredible way with melody and dissonances is there on full display and and so you've got david alec talking about the importance you know of how they encouraged each other, how they influenced each other. And you need distance. You need the perspective of 30 or so years to to kind of understand that. Well, I needed that time to understand what I should ask them, you know. And to me, they they echo each other's story in, 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 in a really terrific, enlightening way. So if you dig down into those interviews, you really get an understanding of what, made that scene distinctive and how the characteristic sound evolved yes god it's it's fascinating isn't it? and it's kind of interesting because because having started in this show i don't know five eight years ago somewhere in that region you know i didn't realize how many bands so you know when it kind of would say something like oh you've done 900 uploads i kind of keep thinking there must be a mistake but then i realized there are probably that many interviews i've done which is a bit weird um yeah. At the same time, at, at the same time, it's kind of what was what was kind of, you know, 10, 20 years ago, I I don't think anyone would have wanted to be interviewed, wouldn't want to talk about their experience of being in the band because it was probably mm. kind of a bit, you know, it didn't end well, let's face it. Most of these things don't end well, do they? As a fan, you know, we love it, but and we think they're having a great time when they're on stage. And then you interview them and then you went, oh, I didn't realize it was quite that difficult traumatic and then you know so that that's kind of been interesting because you mentioned that sense of time and distance and mm. i was thinking it was about 25 to 30 years just you know you need to have a bit of a gap and then 
Yeah. It's not just looking back at with rose-tinted sunglasses. I do think that is the music from that period has got a lot more depth than I remember. And also, I've discovered bands from that period that I missed the first time, which is um, mm. a confession I have to make. Because actually, you couldn't always get to hear the mad band. You know, we didn't have the internet. We didn't have streaming. So if John Peel or you saw a review in the NME, you just went... I can't just take a punt. Obviously, you do take a punt when it's the record of the week and then you buy it and then it's rubbish. And mm. you think, I'm never doing that again because I hate that record and it cost me $3.99, which was like yeah. two months of saving money. So, you know, you couldn't always access that music. And also there was so much that I was also listening to that I didn't have time to listen to another hundred odd albums, you know. So it's been brilliant to hear that. But then I've noticed, you know, A, there's been lots of films coming out. There was one on the chills, wasn't there? There was on the go-betweens. There was George Best, yeah. the the wedding present one. I think there's been other really quirky ones on a band called Rima Rima and the Dolly Mixture mixtures. Felt. Felt. God, yes. The I, I done an interview with, with Lawrence. It was brilliant. You know, the King of Bel, yeah. uh, Belgravia. Um, you yeah. know, and then there's been lots of books. Like I also mentioned two books on goth. Cherry Red Records, who's the label that seems to have hoovered up a lot of uh, labels from that period, have put out a triple CD of C86, and then they went up to mm-hmm. C87, up to 91, and now they're going back to C85 with a triple CD, which has just come out. So... You know, that period is is perfect. And then, you know, obviously there's been a few books on Fly and None that have come out, one very recently. And mm. that is, so your timing is actually perfect, isn't it, to add to that that layer of in, interest for us fan fans and also people who never came across it the first time, young people, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, and um, it, it is, it's, it's, it's something to do with the generation looking back, I, I suppose, on... Um, on 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 our lives and um I, you know i've always regarded myself as extremely lucky to have been in dunedin when when that music happened because it was a, a formative period and and it's it's a delight though that that it has become a book and people are rediscovering it again because you do think when you're finished with something like you know, a zine, well, that's it. You know, that was a cool period of my life, but now I better get back and uh, get myself uh, into gear again and to, uh, into living a proper life. But, of course, there was always a part of me that thought that was the best journalism I ever did. And, I, I mean, I went on to be a, a, a current affairs journalist on television and, you know, I did win some awards and, and now I'm a director on a, 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 a rural television programme here, which I love, called Country Calendar, which is a very different life from being a music writer. But uh, the two go together really well, actually. Um, the uh, farmers are obsessive as musicians. Um it's a bizarre life. One day I can be talking to a farmer about the microns of his of his wool, and the next day I can be asking David Kilgore about open open guitar tuning. So <laughs> it's an interesting life. But 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 you know, I always thought that garage. You know, a part of me never wanted to stop doing garage. I really wanted to keep doing it because to me it was the most important thing happening in my life. You know, that music was amazing exciting and I wanted people to hear about it and I wanted to indulge myself as a music fan and keep writing about it but of course we the garage was there was no commercial footing whatsoever 
No one ever got paid. No one ever paid for advertising. We 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 would run flying advertisements on the back page without even ever thinking of charging them. Why would we do that? You know, Chris Knox would draw a brilliant uh, ad for us, and we'd put it on the back page because that's what you do. It looked yes. great. Of course, we're going to have a, a, an ad from Chris Knox because it adds, it makes us look good and it's good for flying none. And this is the music we love. So, you know, no one ever got paid. So, no. but when, but when you got, when, when, as a fanzine writer, when you got a few freebies in the post and you yeah. got, got on the guest list, you felt like, well, you know, this is living the dream, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And we did get lots, of, we got sent lots of records. So we got records from the Midwest of the USA. For God's sake! So, and we got records from England. We got fanzines sent from England. People who uh, years later would still be sending us stuff in the late eighties, because um, it took that long sometimes for people to discover us. You know, yes. we we were long gone by the time people discovered us. You know, uh, <laughs> we'd done our job and, and scarped, and, and people were still chasing us. Hey, I'd like to get. You know, people were still writing to me in the early two thousands. If I asking if I had any issues of garage. And you know, and 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 I and I did, and I would send them in exchange for for a book or something. You know. Yes, that's fantastic. So when you yeah. were look, when you were looking back at your fanzines, was there anything in particular that that kind of um, blew your mind? You know, I just wondered if there was anything that really surprised you. Well, I, I, I always loved the story in Garage Five uh, that I did on. Um, that I always loved the story that I did for Garage Five on Chris Knox because I went to stay with Chris in Auckland and he was very kind, put me up, of course, because I, you know, I'd hitchhiked to Auckland, I think, um, you know, because we didn't have any budget. And um, I spent a couple of days with him and that was a real insight into how, you know, his life and his creative life. He'd be playing the guitar in the bedroom in the morning. I remember him practicing for a gig. Um, and delivering, he would walk around Auckland in his jandals, delivering Flying Nun records to record shops. That's how basic it was, you know. Chris was the artist and the distributor, you know, um, and I went with him. And, of course, it worked because I was pro- I was distributing um, uh, editions of Garage with him, uh, you know, probably Garage 4, which I just finished, and was, that's why I would have travelled up the country to, to drop it off at record stores record shops here were amazingly supportive you know they they used to sell it and just give me all the money is, is my memory of it um yes. so they never cut or anything they just sent me the money and that enabled us to get the next one printed um that that's how it worked you know it, it worked on that basis very so record shops were really important too even though we were snotty and opinionated they they they, they supported us you know yeah, because I do people saying, "Oh, you should you should write about some other music," and and I just went, mm, "That's not the music I love." So someone else can do that, and yes. they would. And that's not my job. I, I don't write about things I don't love. Not in my fanzine. The nature of a fanzine is here is my obsession. I hope you like it. <laughs> <laughs> I noticed you had the the Jesus Jesus and Mary Chain and the Cramps and um, yeah, and, and Ericsson. Yeah. Rory Erickson as well. Yeah, Rocky Erickson, yeah, yeah. Because like I say that, you know, there were they, the, the, we had great music fans and and writers, you know, where David Swift, who was a sub-editor on the NME, 
and also a writer. He had written some of the earliest um, stories on Flying Nun. In fact, he wrote the first published newspaper story, I believe, for the Christchurch Press when when Flying Nun started and was about to put out Tally Ho by the Clean. So David was has been a friend for years, um, even though we seldom see each other. Uh, we're in touch and... Um, yeah, he was he was crucial, David. He's such a great guy. He he wrote to us, but he wrote Jesus and Mary Chain story for us for nothing. I mean, incredible, really. And he he was a bit sniffy about Jesus and Mary Chain actually, which is quite cool too, because he went sort of fawning over them. David was saying, "Oh yeah, there's yeah, people are saying they're really terrific." I'm not sure. <laughs> Oh, that's so good. I, and also the photography, the pictures, were these ones that you were sent or did you take the pictures yourself? Um, well, we had, look, Flying Nun had a whole community of artists and photographers who were fantastic. Stuart Page was was uh, a, a, a pretty crucial figure. He, he, he took uh, pictures um, of the Great Unwashed, um, and many bands, also a great artist. So, um, we we we. I think we got we. Well, David would have sent us the Jesus and Mary Chain pictures and the Cramps pictures. We kind of um, had multiple sources of pictures, and I can't exactly remember how we managed. It. Flying Nun obviously gave us a lot of. They were publicity pictures. Yes. Uh, and there was a guy, Craig McNabb who took early pictures of the clean, which are just fantastic pictures, uh, including one on the, on the merry-go-round where the clean just look on top of the world. It's just such a great shot. That was taken in Dunedin yeah, by, by Craig McNabb. And that, well, that was a Flying Nun publicity shot. So that would have been, you know, sent to us. Um, I used to visit the Flying Nun office, you know, or, you know, whenever I went to Christchurch and, you know, um, Try and uh, collect, catch some releases, probably, and um, and talk, you know, because I, I wanted to know what was happening, obviously, and and um, so so yeah, there were uh, and you know the whole art uh, community that grew around Flying Nun, you know, you people like Ronnie Van Hout, who's now you know a, a well-known artist in Melbourne, and um, and a terrifically uh, terrific. Um, artists and and so they, they they were there's an interview with Ronnie in the book Ronnie and that's one of my favorite interviews because he's not been talked to a lot and he's really interesting about uh that whole art community that grew around flying nun with Leslie McLean and um and Stuart Page and and just how that went hand in hand with the music they were inspired by the music they were artists and of course Ronnie is his he screen printed some um uh covers for the for the pen group records and, and they're worth lots of money now because he's a, a renowned artist so that's pushed the prices of those up and yes. so you know flying nun had such a great look about it i mean i was really disappointed when they suddenly in like 87 i think they they got a standard uh label because i thought that the mix of labels when the bands did it themselves were just fantastic. I mean, a, a collector's dream because they're all, you know, one-offs, you know, and, and so the, 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 the art was, was I mean, they, the, the Kilgour brothers are, are, are terrific artists themselves and so is Robert Scott, the bass player, incredible, you know. I've got some of his paintings on my walls here. I mean, he's 
he, he he's the terrific terrific artist so that's why the flying nun had such a distinctive look you know and i'm kind of i'm kind of glad that that garage in its own black and white way had a quite a you know, it, it, it looked pretty good by the end. Um, yes. No, uh, no it, it, yeah. design wise. But there's also another photographer called Carol, is it Tibbet? Oh, yeah, Carol Tibbet. Oh, amazing. Yeah, amazing. She, her work has, from my money, it's grown in stature. Um, I'm so glad you mentioned Carol because she's crucial. She took the the, the really early uh, great pictures of the clean, you know, in the, the, in the, the in the bath shot, which became. Uh, the boodle, boodle, boodle cover. She took the shot of them in the back of a old Vanguard in Auckland. They're just a great shot. They're they're all in the book, you know. I really wanted um, her pictures in the book, and I wanted to give them a a, a a a good spread because they deserve it. And I I actually wanted to interview Carol, but she's a very modest person, and I managed to get her to write at least something about her memory of taking the shots because I've never seen her talk about them. Either. Yes. And 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 she did. She wrote lovely captions for each of the five or six shots we used. And you know, of course, that's it's her shot. You know, that's her shot on 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 the cover. You know, that's yeah. her shot, and that's her shot on the back. You know, it was a shame it was used small, but it's such a great shot too. It's so evocative. A single woman dancing to the clean. I, I love that shot. All her pictures are great, you know. She, she, yeah, she really, she's grown in stature, and you know, wow, what a job she did. And so that's one of the things I said to Todd. Um, you know, we we really need to use her pictures and really give them the space they deserve. And Todd did a great job of laying them out and and making sure they did look good. I hope Carol's happy. I just sent her the book yesterday. So she should get it within a few days, and I hope I hope she enjoys it because yes, uh, Todd's very generous. He 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 supplied copies for everybody who contributed to the to the to the book or was interviewed, which is fantastic. So it's something we can give back um, to to people. Yes, absolutely. And is it available from all good bookshops and also online as well? But it's really. It's it's available primarily from Hozak Books, um, you know, in 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 the United States and in Europe. Um, Todd, I mean, Todd is when I was up there with him, he was sending them to Brazil, Italy, Norway, Denmark. You know, so they are going out across the world, which is fantastic. <laughs> you know, going to have an international launch, you know, in its own way. So you can order it from Hozak Books. That's um, easiest for for English people, I think. I, I think Todd will probably try and get it distributed if he can. Uh, he has got, I think he has got a distributor in Europe, but it's really a music shop thing. Yes. Music shop stocker. It. It's going to sell, it, it, it really, it's it, books, um, it, it sell, Todd's books are in music shops and they sell um, because he knows what music fans want. He's very smart about that. Yeah. He's smart. He's small but effective is how I like to think of Todd. And <laughs> and here in New Zealand it's available, of, of course, through Flying Nun. They they are just they are the sole distributors in New Zealand and they are getting it um into uh they well, they're they're sending it out at the moment actually. The first shipment has arrived from Chicago, which is really exciting because it's shipping, as you know, is a nightmare. And getting yes. it from States to New Zealand was a mission, but it's been accomplished and there's a second shipment coming. So that's great. But 
for anyone who wants it immediately, right, to get on that Hozak book website and uh, you can order it. And, it, you know, it, it, I'm really proud of it. It is a great read and that's because the people who make the music make it a great read, the interviews and what they did, you know. So yes, the music... You, you... I was going to say, you were there for a zeitgeist moment, really, weren't you? I was, and we, you know, we were, and that's why we were enthusiastic and thought something should be done beyond um, just, you know, newspaper coverage, which was extensive here, you know, relatively speaking. Matt, Matt Goody talks about that, and Chris Knox talks about that too. There was a lot of mainstream media coverage, but just to have it in one place, you can't beat it, and now have all those things in one book <laughs> it, it, it is kind of magic you know it's it's neat that um it's been really well received here people have been excited about it and it's you know the the first lot's already sold um and it's gonna you know it's 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 gonna be in demand and and i love that and it and i think it will stay in demand too because it's not like it's not like it's a, a fashion moment or something you know it's not um uh, it's, it's not something that's a flash, flash in the pan. It's got, it's going to remain. Um, we didn't realise, of course, that we were recording, you know, an important moment in music history. No, absolutely, well, certainly, and and you know, for the indie rock world, um, you know, it, 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 the bands like the Clean and the Chills have had a real impact. You can hear it. Some we hear it in bands coming back, and also the fact that. Um, when Chris Knox had his stroke in 2009, a lot of uh, American bands uh, covered his songs to raise money for him in an album called um, Stroke. Uh, it, it's fantastic. It's a double CD, and it's really great because you get people like Bill Callahan, uh, The Mountain Goats, um, Pavement, I think, or Pavement were on the other CD um, under the influence, which was uh, 21 years of flying none, and you know, so pavement have you know acknowledged many times the clean and how important they were, and yes. um, and that, that was the thing, David, going up to the states, man, the people there who are fans of flying none, you know, they they they're like us, <laughs> you know, they're kind of raised <laughs> as well, and. And just so uh, welcoming and and uh, knowledgeable and appreciative. So when when I did um, book launches up there with Matt Goody, we met these people firsthand. You know, there's this this little in Chicago. There's something like five small labels that have released New Zealand music. And of course, I was great. I was so grateful again to meet Tom Lax from Silk Breeze. He's from Philadelphia, based in Philadelphia. He has released New Zealand music on and off for thirty years. So he was a guy who who understood the value, both in the early as soon as he heard it, you know. And he came to New Zealand in the early nineties, and then he released some Dead Sea albums. Um, he's written he he writes in the book. So Tom is a really great figure in the book to me because he's the outsider who tells me. When I went to interview him in 2014 in, in Philadelphia, he tells me the impact that music had for him, and 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 his story of this, of of getting these boxes of New Zealand records and thinking, what what is this stuff going to be like? And then he opens it, and it's like, wow, they have a party. You know, it seems to go on all night listening to the stuff. Going, this stuff is just wild. <laughs> What have these people done? They've mashed up the 13th floor elevators with the Velvet Underground. This is like, this stuff's 
genius. So it starts a, a long journey for him, which has resulted in him being a, a fan and releasing great music. I mean, Silk Breeze always uh, releases really interesting, great music, and they still are. Yes. So Tom in the book, that, that was a really cool thing to, to happen to for me to meet Tom and understand um, his love of the same music and also and we have a mutual love of pies. <laughs> <laughs> so that's been a real bonding thing, pies and music. Um, yes. So, yeah, and I saw him again. Saw him again in the states, and yeah, it was it was terrific to see him. And uh, yeah, it's just yeah, he's a great guy. And those so meeting those people, David, was a real insight and in how fondly and highly regarded flying nun Arthur Saar, you know, up there. And it, it was cool to, because it's kind of like a myth, you know, because David Kilgore had told me about this stuff when he toured with the clean, you know. But, of course, David's a very modest person, so he, you know, he 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 doesn't say a lot, but he, you know, I got the impression that, you know, that, that they, uh, you know, that they had made an impact. Well, the impact's enormous, actually, and yes. that's why they're, Released um, by Merge, you know the US label. Yes. Uh, all this stuff's re, you know re-released by Merge because it again see the it, that's the that's the thing, David. The music has continued to evolve and continued to appeal to people. That's why you know Garage remains relevant, and you know and Hamish Kilgour um, wrote wrote an, a short note for this edition saying why Garage is still relevant. You know. Because the music's still evolving. Yes, absolutely. And also, I think during that period, especially, and it might still be the same, but I don't know because I'm an old man. But um, yes, certain <laughs> labels were, was you know, you just bought the record on label because you trusted the person who'd signed them and released it, that they were going to create a, they were fans and they didn't want to put out just anything or think, oh, this might sell, but I don't really like it. It was like, you got that sense. So you got a trust, didn't you? So with Flying Nun, there was definitely someone curating what was going out. So you'd, it would have been unlikely that you would have gone, my God, that was a real duffer. You know, that was, <laughs> so that, that, you know, and that period that you were writing, Garage, you know, it was obviously, you know, you were hitting solid gold here, weren't you? Yeah. I mean, the records were uh, from 81 um, to 88, uh, uh, you know, uh, well, and, and on and onward as well. And they're still releasing, Flying Nun's still releasing great music. I mean, it's just that my aesthetic uh, personal taste was really met in in the, in, the, in, the, in those bands in the 80s because my taste was evolving and I was trying to catch up with what they were listening to. That, that's the other great thing about a community, David, is, you know, you, you, you're exposed to so much music because, I mean, with people like Robert Scott, you know, he, he had an incredible record collection. He was into Can and um, Swell Maps and, you know, more experimental stuff than I'd been exposed to. So if you went to Robert's house, you, you saw a lot of music that was interesting and you should listen to. And there are other people associated with, associated with Flying Nun who also, um, Gary Cope, who worked for Flying Nun in the office, he he had lots of interesting music, you know, The Residents, and um, he had that research magazine out of San Francisco. Oh, know, yes, with, research, with, yes. You know, you know, William Burroughs and all that cut-up technique and all that sort of stuff. And so you're learning all that as you... Um, 
as you go on. So you, that's the great thing about musicians. You know, they know if you like what they're doing, you should probably ask them what they're listening to because you'll probably like that too. Yes. And, you know, that discovery has continued for me. You know, I've heard my first Lamont Young records when I went to the States and I went, ah, okay, that's where Kale and Reed came from, that kind of drone thing. Now I get that, you know. So you're always learning and 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 as a journalist, when you learn something new, you think, oh, well, maybe I should tell some other people about it. And therein you have the seeds of fanzine. Don't you? Yes, this is true. <laughs> so who, was that, who was that band, Lamont Young? Oh, no, no. Lamont Young was a composer in the, in the States. And um, he kind of, I mean, look, I have a very rudimentary understanding, but it, he had a limited palette of notes and 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 you would kind of compose on that basis and 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 you know he, he was big on drones and i mean john kale was talked about kale was one of his students and so you know um i think he appears in the film doesn't he that todd hayes did you know about the velvet underground I, I'm, I'm pretty yeah I, I can't remember i actually had the pleasure of watching that film twice with hamish kilgow when i saw him last yes. in um, sadly, of course, Hamish has passed away, and it's been a real, a hell of a blow to everyone. You know that he was such a great guy and a creative force. It's very sad. We're sad to have lost him. And Peter Gutteridge has passed away, and those are Roy Colbert. Um, so I dedicated the book to them because they were just crucial figures um, in every way. And uh, you know, I'm glad I was. Um, you know, that was the right thing to do because they were. Uh, you know, really important figures. And Hamish, Hamish's importance will continue to be realised. I mean, he was making music right up until he died and with um, some recordings. He, he was in a kind of uh, flying, uh, in, a, in a group called the Sunday Painters with um, Paul Keane, Kay Woodward, uh, Alec Bathgate, um, and Hamish drummed, of course. And, man, he was such a distinctive drummer. I mean, I... Again, I don't know technically anything about music, but when Hamish played the drums, it was like he made them speak. They had his personality. I, I can't really explain it, but he 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 was a you know a simple in a way technically I understand drummer, but he was a distinctive drummer, and you can pick his drums. You can pick his sound. Like uh, uh, this happened to me because Alec Bathgate put out a solo record, uh, Phantom Dots. And there's a song, there's one song on there, and it, it, it sort of jumps out at me, and I'm going, shit, I love that song. Look at those drums, those drums, that's fantastic. And then I look at it and go, oh, Hamish Kilgour, drummed on it. <laughs> and, you know, so it's not made up. It's like, wow, that, that, that what he's doing with the drums appeals to me, and I don't know it's drummers. I mean, people can talk about Ginger Baker and what a wonderful player he was and, you know, Ringo, but, you know, I kind of realised, of course they are, but, Hamish just had a way of like speaking with the drums that I, I you know, I find, I find fascinating. Yes, absolutely. My wow, God, that's fantastic. Well, look, thank you ever so much, Richard, for giving me the time for this. This has been amazing. So, I'll probably I'll probably be able to put put this out very soon, and I can always send you a link, and then you could put it on your um, Facebook social media sites, and that would be great, actually. The C eighty six show, yeah. but it's been fascinating, and I have to say, there's you know so many other layers that you've sort of um, been peeling away here that, um, 
Yes. Well, well, I'm sorry, I am a I am a raver, Daddy, but I'm a very excitable person. No, I, I'm not surprised. I know, and it's great. And and you sort of mentioned that a lot of these musicians are still making music now. So, oh. um, mm-hmm. and and in the case of Philip, uh, not Philip Martin, he's you know touring at wow. the very moment. So, um, I mean, he's having a real renaissance, and it's so great because he, you know, he's had his trial of Mark. You know, Martin, I think had a very conventional idea of how his music career should go. It, you know. It should be successful in a conventional way. He would still do the music that he wanted to do, but whereas the clean, you see, just said, "Well, we'll make our music, but on our terms, and we don't really care what happens with it. We, we, we'll make it. We know it's good." And uh, but, but they didn't have a notion of commercial success. That that was not what they were about. They were about creating this art, this music, and so. That, and that's why they were so. That, that's why they only made records when they wanted to make records. They didn't have a, a, a need to to make records when someone else said, "Oh, you should make a record." No, no, they they just kept making records for thirty odd years, but on their own terms. And I don't think they thought that they should ever get involved with the business of of rock music. No, that was not them. They wanted. They had a basically anti-authoritarian, anti-capitalist attitude. Whereas I think Martin had a more conventional idea of how, you know, success could be. And when it happened, you know, it should have happened with submarine bells. They should have, you know, should have, yeah, they should have gone mega, you know, if you want to go mega. But it didn't happen because there are a lot of factors, you know, timing, you know, grunge happened. It, it, yeah, the shells got sort of swamped. You know, in in trying to break through, but you know, the clean never believed in breaking through. They didn't believe that. They just thought, no, no, you, you, that's thinking in the wrong terms. Make yes. the music, see what happens. But you know, and it happened to Straight Jacket Fits too, where they looked to have the potential to break through and be as big as Nirvana. But again, it didn't happen simply because timing, you know, or, or, but, the, but, but the music's still there, you know. Yeah, and, and I Sean mean. had gone on to make great music anyway as Dimmer. So, you know, so, yeah, it's, it, but, it, but, but we're trained to believe you should have a conventional success, you know, even as an, a musician. But, but, but no, and, and, and Chris Knox learned that learned that because his his first his second band toy love his first band was the enemy that's the book takes its name from yes. all down the show they're formative songs um you know they went to australia to try and make breakthrough disaster and and that and and knox knew then create create write the songs don't worry about the business because that's nonsense make the art see what happens and and chris is you know from the time he and Alec formed the Tall Dwarfs, that to me is them. Is they started making magic. I mean, Chris started making magic as a filmmaker and as a songwriter. The, 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 the Tall Dwarfs stuff to me is just way above Toy Love. Uh, I, I I like the Enemy and uh, uh, um, Toy, the Enemy and the Tall Dwarfs more than I like Toy Love. I like Toy yes. Love. I saw them. They were great to see live. Fantastic band. But musically, for me personally, my aesthetic was once they once Chris wrote "Nothing's Going to Happen." I was like, 
that to me is one of the foundation stones of New Zealand music. It's just a great, great song. Oh, we'll have to go and check now and make sure I've got that one. Nothing, nothing's, nothing's going to happen. It's just great. It, yeah, you'll hear. It's kind of got strains of folk, the velvets, drone, and it's just a brilliant uh, existential angst about ennui. I just <laughs> love it. Nothing's going to happen. It's a great lyric too. Yeah, great lyric. Oh, well, I'll, I'll be checking this out very soon. Right. Well, look. Richard, thank you ever so much, and I will put the link to how you can to uh, the the you know how you can get the book as well. And and you know, yeah, that'd like, be great. Jose, yeah, I will, I will. But look, this is this is fantastic. I'm so excited. Your your enthusiasm is so infectious. <laughs> great, great. This is well, good. You know, yeah, yeah, it's real. I'm still I still play those clean records, and they still give me a charge. You know, I play put getting older on, and it still make the hairs on my arm stand up. Yes, gonna right. I'm just gonna have to listen to this song now. Nothing's gonna happen. How are you gonna have to? Yeah, yeah. Tell me about what you think, David. Once you had a listen, the tall dwarfs. This is excellent. I'll put it. I'll I'll just make sure I put it on my playlist as well. Right yeah. there, you go. Look, have a great day, and I'm gonna go to yeah. bed. Anyway, look, take care. Thanks a lot. Yeah, great. Thank you so much, David. It was really great. Great questions. Yes. I enjoyed the chat. Yeah, brilliant. I love your book. This is good. Thanks. Okay, see you later. Bye-bye. Thanks, David. See you, mate. Bye. And that, dear listener, is how you come to a swift conclusion finale in an interview or not we like to ramble in the uk anyway a massive thank you to richard langston for giving me the time for that interview um the book is titled pull down the shades garage fanzine 1984 to 86 tales from the new zealand music underground which is absolutely beautifully put together highly recommended <clears throat> and i'm not just saying that well i am but anyway you get the gist Buy it, it will change your life. Um, this has been the C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. <clears throat> I know that's classy. And um, all these have been archived on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. It's true. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe. <laughs>